Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of WP Talk. I'm your host, James Burton, Managing Editor of Wealth Professional Canada. For this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Michael Greenberg to the pod, Senior Vice President, Portfolio Manager for Franklin Templeton Investment Solutions. Michael, who's based in Canada, is part of a global multi-asset team within Franklin Templeton, but he wears two hats. One is on the portfolio management side of their multi-asset solutions business in Canada. He manages Canada-based managed solutions, including Franklin Quotential, Franklin LifeSmart Sustainable, and Franklin ETF portfolios. The other hat he wears is focused on a research strategy role around fixed income, helping to create strategy and advise on positioning and allocation decisions. In the pod, we discuss whether the 60-40 portfolio is dead, whether the role of fixed income has changed given everything that's happened in recent months and years, and the value of managed solutions to advisors. Over to Michael, let's dive in. So Michael, thanks for joining us on WP Talk. Uh, As I mentioned in the intro, you have quite a wide reaching brief. Um, You know, with that in mind, roll back to 2019, I believe, um, and you you penned a paper titled, Is the 60-40 Portfolio Dead? Your answer back then was no. How would you address that same question today? Yeah, sure. Um, And thanks very much for having me. You know, absolutely. You know, I think the answer back then was the portfolio, uh, the 60-40 portfolio was not dead, but uh, probably in need of some help. And, you know, we have to think about the environment back when that was penned. You know, we were in an environment where, you know, bond yields were extremely low. We had very low inflation. We had some central banks that have negative interest rates and, and, you know, in that in that environment, you know, the fixed income side of the of the sixty forty portfolio definitely looked challenged. So we didn't believe it was dead, but we believe there were certain things that advi- you know investors needed to do to just insulate themselves a little bit, given some of those headwinds uh, to the portfolio at that point. Now, you know, if we look at where we are today, um, it actually looks a lot more attractive. So I'd be more emphatically today saying that it's not dead, and part of that is because of what happened in twenty twenty two. You know, 2022 was a very difficult year for a 60-40 portfolio. Not only did you have, you know, stock markets that were challenged, but you also had bond markets that were challenged. So that that normal kind of negative correlation between stocks and bonds broke down and it made for, for a tough year. Now, the good news is that really created an environment that is much more uh, positive for, uh, you know, a multi-asset portfolio or a 60-40 portfolio. You know, if you think of where we are today, you know, inflation is high, but it's subsiding. You know, central banks are, are much closer to the end of their rate hike cycles. So no longer do we have any negative uh, interest rate policy uh, in the world. Everyone has been raising interest rates uh, and yields are much higher. So much higher starting point. So when we look at kind of the 60-40 portfolio from a longer term perspective, let's say over the next five to 10 years, you know, return prospects are much improved and definitely is 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 a great um, solution for, for kind of a lot of uh, different types of investors. What about the role of fixed income um, in multi-asset portfolios, Michael? Is that, given everything that's happened, like you said, last year, and you know, with uh, interest rates uh, rising and inflation, has has that role changed? You know, I don't think the role has changed, but I think the efficacy of its ability to deliver on those roles is 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 again much improved. And if we think about the the two main roles of why um, we as investors would hold fixed income in a multi-asset portfolio. There's really two, two main roles. One is that diversification role, and the other is a return-seeking or yield-seeking role. 
So maybe, you know, breaking those down uh, individually, if we look at the diversification role, you know, generally that that role is being played out with the use of safer uh, developed market government bonds or, or very high quality investment grade, you know, credit as, as a tool or as a holding that would hopefully offset some of the equity risk that we would probably have in our portfolio. And the concept there is, you know, is, is, is rather simple in the sense that, you know, if the economy is slowing, if we're in an environment that's, that's tougher for equities or for risky assets, generally that tougher economic environment, you would have central banks that are cutting interest rates um, and you'd have bond yields, which are falling, which are, which are positive for bond market returns. So you have bonds sort of diversifying that, that equity risk. Now, of course, this doesn't work uh, such as, you know, late 2021 and 2022 when there's an inflation problem. You know, when there's an inflation problem, the central banks can't cut rates. They actually have to stay the course. And in fact, as we showed, as we saw in 2022, they're actually increasing rates. So it doesn't always work. But, you know, kind of looking at where we were a few years ago to compare it to today, again, central banks are much closer to the top, probably, of their rate hiking cycle. Bond yields are much higher. So we've built in a lot more room. Um, for central banks to reverse policy, um, for bond yields to fall, should we, you know, fall into a much deeper recession or or some sorts of other um, financial uh, or, or or economic issues that would that would potentially challenge equities, but potentially could allow central banks to reverse course and for bonds to be that buffer again. So that diversification role of bonds, we think, um, hasn't changed. But we think it is actually a lot more attractive now when you look at kind of where we are today as far as a starting point on those government bond yields, for example. Now, that other role, that return-seeking role, you know, there again, when we look at certain parts of the fixed income market, these are generally the riskier parts of the fixed income market, full disclosure, you know, high-yield bonds, um, uh, other parts of the credit market, uh, emerging market debt, those types of, uh, of fixed income asset classes definitely have higher risk, but typically have much higher return and higher yield. And we will look at, and when we look at the yields today on some of those parts of the fixed income market, you're getting high single digit, even low double digit yields. And yields are generally a pretty good predictor of forward returns over the next number of years of those asset classes. So, you know, that part of fixed income, uh, again, the return or yield seeking rule hasn't changed, but it's much more attractive today than it would have been three or four years ago. Now, that being said, I would be a little bit careful here. Again, those higher yielding fixed income asset classes are higher risk asset classes as well. You know, we're a little bit more cautious on the economic environment um, over the next six to 12 months. So we might not jump into that part of the fixed income market with both feet just yet, but it's definitely something um, over sort of a five to 10 year time horizon that looks that looks quite attractive. Yeah, okay, interesting. They mentioned you were cautious there or you know, a degree of caution. I'm, I'm just, I wonder if you look into your crystal ball a little bit, what do you, what do you expect or what do you foresee when it comes to interest rate policies? You know, a lot of talk about markets um, pricing in cuts by the end of mm-hmm. the year. Do you think that's a little optimistic or, or how do you how do you view that? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pull out the Franklin Templeton crystal ball and, and, and like many others, they're, they're definitely a little bit foggy. There's a lot of uncertainty in these markets, but, you know, we definitely have a view on, on where things are going and, and our positioning, our portfolios for that and and to be to be frank you know for us the the glass is a little bit half empty uh in the sense that when we look at um you know the interest rate hikes that we've seen from you know the bank of canada the fed you know uh even in europe the ecb you know these interest rate hikes or the cumulative effect of these interest rate hikes is probably still yet to be felt fully in uh in the economy and, and we think that that will still affect 
um, you know, consumer spending and investment. And then, of course, you know, more recently we've had, um, you know, I would call some banking stresses. I don't think it's been a, you know, I don't think it was sort of a 2008 systemic banking crisis, but we've definitely had some banking system issues um, that have definitely uh, have and probably will continue to affect some of the smaller banks. Um, and, and that will flow through to the economy in the sense that these smaller, you know, medium and smaller size banks would, would likely curtail lending a little bit. And, and they tend to be big lenders to smaller and mid-sized companies, to, to consumers and to, uh, uh, to commercial real estate and things like that. And, and with less lending flowing to those parts of the economy, small businesses, uh, you know, consumers, that generally is going to be a headwind for economic growth. So, you know, we do think that um, an economic retrenchment is likely uh, to at least result in a mild recession. Um, we think that that will bring an end uh, at some point to, to this rate hike cycle that we're seeing from central banks and even force probably some rate cuts at some point, potentially uh, late this year, but maybe not till early next year. But but uh, that that policy might at some point be positive for stock markets. But we do think when we look at kind of what's priced into stock markets, for example, you know we've seen quite a run more recently from the stock from stock markets, as well as when we look at things like um, like earnings expectations, we think those are still quite high. Um, profit margins are still fairly elevated. We think there's going to be some headwinds to to all those components, and and for us that suggests that we. Um, could see a little bit of economic weakness, a little bit of, a bit of economic challenges that could affect risky assets such as stocks, uh, some of those corporate uh, and higher risk fixed income markets I talked about earlier. And hence, we would be a little bit more defensively positioned in portfolios. And in fact, with the more recent rally that we've seen, you know, we've, we've taken that opportunity to actually take a little bit more risk off the table um, within our portfolios. Now, I think when we look out a little bit longer term, you know, there's things to be positive on. You know, consumer, uh, the U.S. consumer, for example, is is quite strong. Corporations are a good good health. We think there's a lot of uh, uh, investment that's going to need to be made for things like energy transition, supply chain reorientation, increasing productivity because of the lack of workers. You know, all these things actually could be quite good for stocks um, and risky parts of fixed income. You know, over that sort of three to five year time here time period, but very short term, very kind of more dynamically, we're, we're positioned a little bit more defensively in portfolios. Can I hone in on on energy a little bit there? Obviously, in Canada, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a very important area, and it's it's done great. Well, while a lot of other sectors and and parts of the market were struggling, it it did well. Obviously, what what do you um, how are you positioned with energy? I guess, and what's your thoughts mm-hmm. on that at this particular point? Yeah, so because we're a little bit less um, positive on uh, the economy and, and economic growth, let's call it over the next you know six to twelve months, that could cause some headwinds um, for for energy markets just because of of the potential um, less demand that's expected. Now that being said, I think when we look at kind of the energy fundamentals, and, and when I say energy fundamentals, I mean you know simply supply and demand. Um, medium to long term, we're, we're much more positive. You know, when you look at supply, you know, obviously from an from an energy perspective, and and, and looking at the energy companies themselves, have been very motivated to uh, return money to shareholders, to increase dividends, and to not necessarily invest in future production. That let's call it lack of investment in future production is going to is going to curtail supply to some extent, while demand will likely continue to climb. You know, we're we're, we're hopeful, um, obviously, that we 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 can um, uh, experience an energy transition to to cleaner energy sources. But that is a multi-year, potentially even multi-decade process. Um, it's going to be very difficult to just turn off the taps from from traditional energy overnight. And hence, 
you know, the supply demand dynamics look fairly bullish for energy when we look out over the medium long term. So it is an ask, you know, it is a part of, I guess, the market that we would be a little bit more positive on. But we do think the short term dynamics might 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 curtail some of that energy market, um, you know, uh, upside. Uh, just given that there could be some some economic growth weakness going forward, and of course that that would have implications for you know certain parts of the market in Canada and potentially even the Canadian dollar and, and other asset classes. You know that being said, we you know it, it is a volatile asset class. We 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 did see it uh, you know energy prices come down quite quite a lot, probably pricing in some of that demand destruction from from economic weakness, and then more recently with the OPEC um, supply curtailment announcement. We've seen a bit of a jump in energy, so it's going to be a, a definitely a volatile asset class, probably a little bit less, um, you know, positive uh, short term. But I think medium to long term, we'd be a little bit more, uh, a little bit more bullish on on so, that sector and others that are tied to uh, some of those commodities. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, let's talk about managed solutions and also you way into um, thing quotential portfolios and mm-hmm. what that offers and how that sort of stands apart from maybe some other um, managed solutions, but I'm interested. You're know, around a long time. I'm curious, given all the things we talked about so far, um, h- how they changed, how they evolved to help investors, advisors, um, you know, with their portfolio construction. Sure. Yeah. And you know, uh, you, you know, you mentioned their Franklin potential portfolios. We've we've celebrated our 20 year anniversary, so we've definitely seen that evolution uh, in these portfolios. And when you think about kind of where these multi-asset portfolios began, they really were very sort of simple um, balanced products to, to begin with. And and the way the evolution that we've seen and that we've experienced within our own um, program is is really, uh, a, a, you know, at a few different levels. One is the different tools um, and asset classes that are available to us um, to invest in has, has greatly increased. So, you know, not only obviously do we have North American equities, but the access to you know, emerging markets and uh, different geographies, but also access to different um, styles and in different factors, you know, with with uh, access to underlying mutual funds, um, ETFs, and even certain derivative products, we can really fine tune um, the exposures that we're trying to get uh, into the portfolio. I'd say also another area that's really evolved is, is the fixed income side of portfolios. You know, gone are the days where we would just simply buy, you know, Canadian government bonds, uh, you know, a couple of investment grade corporate bonds and call it a day. You know, now with global diversification, with access to, um, you know, really some very interesting global fixed income markets, I think the fixed income part of these portfolios has really evolved. And when you put all that together, you know, I think the diversification um, component uh, of these portfolios has greatly improved and 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 really have made them, um, you know, a solid choice for investors as far as really a one-stop shop for a lot of a lot of clients. I'd say the other thing that's really evolved is. You know, uh, along with markets, you know the the, the markets are, are moving faster um, than they they maybe were in the past. So the dynamic nature of, of these portfolios has also um, uh, evolved uh, from 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 the early days. You know, we're much more dynamic from a top down asset allocation perspective. Meaning, you know, there'll be times where we want to be in Canada. There'll be times where we where we don't. There'll be times when we want to be more focused on growth, and, and other times more focused on value. Um, but also from the bottom up, you know, having access to passive ETF tools and active managers, we also want to be dynamic with when we use those different types of tools in the portfolio based on you know where we um, you know where where we see see the world going. So that's you know that's really from the investment side. I'd say you know the other area that that's that's kind of evolved um, is 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 on the team. You know, long gone are the days where it's sort of one portfolio manager you know sitting in an office in Toronto 
putting their finger in the air and deciding, you know, I feel like buying Canadian equities today. You know, now these multi-asset teams, such as the one I'm a part of, are really sort of institutional quality multi-asset teams. You know, it's really the same team um, that's managing the multi-billion dollar pension plan that's managing the the, the potential retail product. So they're getting that that manager selection, that asset allocation, that risk management expertise within the team. And 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 we're seeing that I think in in, in portfolio results. So you know, definitely a, a very interesting and, and fun time to be to be in multi-asset with uh, with the evolution that we've seen and 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 we'll continue to see. Like I don't think these portfolios are 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 set it and forget it from our perspective either. There's there's always things that we're looking at um, that the industry is looking at to 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 improve them. And uh, I think there's some exciting things on the horizon as well there too. You mentioned set it and forget it. I'm just, I'm just sort of thinking about the value of these to an advisor. Is it something that an advisor can set and forget, or is that maybe just oversimplifying it? Well, I think that, you know, the advisors definitely need to do their due diligence. So I think when they're looking at multi-asset solutions, you definitely want to look at the program and the the results, of course, but looking at the team behind the program, um, you know, what what sort of process they have for risk management, things like that. I think the non-investment things are very important in, in sense, what kind of support as an advisor are you getting? Outside of just the, the the investment solution, you know, what kind of marketing materials are available, commentary, that kind of thing. I think those are all important um, steps in the initial due diligence. Now, once an advisor has selected a managed program, I think they are technically built to set it and and maybe not forget it, but set it and 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 review maybe you know every year or you know maybe quarterly. But because there's so much going on underneath the hood, that that's the whole point. Is it really does allow the advisor to delegate that investment management? to yeah. a, a multi-asset team such as ours to really focus their time on other parts of the of, of, of their um, you know investment planning process uh, in the sense that you know when you're when you're uh, financial planning for someone the investment management part of course is important but there's also will and estates tax planning you know insurance uh, at times I've heard of even marriage counseling you know advisors have a lot going on to manage that client relationship. Uh, the goal with these multi-asset solutions is really just to give them um, one part of that pie or one piece of that pie that they can delegate to someone else to do on their behalf um, to free up time to do some of those other you know value add services that that clients uh, the clients want. So set it and forget it might be too strong of a word, but definitely you know uh, uh, delegate and uh, and and trust and and review um, I think is is maybe a good uh, a good way to put it for for these types of solutions. And you mentioned there about. Um, Quotential's dynamism and the dynamic approach um, and about how markets have got faster, essentially. Uh-huh. Um, you know, from an advisor's perspective, you know, and, and their clients, obviously, you know, maybe you could expand a bit on that about how, how an advisor can benefit from um, that dynamic approach, maybe what that entails. Sure. You know, I think a good example right now is, is, is if we look within the fixed income market, you know, interest rates have obviously been very, very volatile. And, and if you look back the last couple of years, we had very, very low interest rates um, and, and very, very low bond yields. They, they went up very, very quickly. Uh, they went down again. They went back up again. You know, a lot, lot of volatility. One of the, one of the, one of the um, really important decisions to make in a portfolio is, is the duration decision. And, and, and duration with fixed, within fixed income, what I mean there is how, how sensitive is your fixed income part of your portfolio to rising and falling interest rates. Now, when rates are falling, you want to be very sensitive to those rates because when rates are falling, the prices of the bonds are going up. So you want to you want to capture that. Now, when interest rates are rising, you want to have very low interest rate sensitivity or very low duration because when when rates are rising, the prices of those bonds are going down. 
So within our portfolios, we've been fairly dynamic with that decision to increase duration at certain times when interest rates, you know, were uh, were quite high and, and and we expected interest rates to fall, but also to reduce duration when interest rates were very low and expected to rise. There's a lot of people behind the scenes on my team that help make that decision and 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 work on that. That's that's going to be very difficult for an advisor who also has all these other components of of their practice to take care of, to do. So in a sense, it's it's allowing the advisor and their clients to participate in certain parts of the bond market at certain times and be less exposed to certain parts of the bond market at other times when when we think it's when we think it's relevant. And and you know the same example could be um, put on currencies. You know when's the right time to to hedge more currency or or leave the currency unhedged? When's the right time to be more in Canadian equities? When's the right time to be more in emerging market equities? You know these are all things that are really important going forward and I think can be a real source of value add uh, being in the right place at the right time. Let's call it. Um, to clients, but would be very difficult for an advisor to replicate, not necessarily because of a skill set thing, but really more from a timing, time thing. You know, my team and myself, this is all we do. You know, we don't have to meet with clients. We don't have to do KYC, KYP, insurance planning, tax planning, marriage counseling. All we do is manage portfolios. So, you know, we have the time and, and resources to to do that. And, uh, you know, I think it's that's going to be really important to to, to eke out some extra returns for portfolios going forward. So I think, uh, you know, that's kind of one of the key, uh, I think one of the key benefits of having a bit of a more of a dynamic um, process that advisors can take advantage of. Okay, fantastic. Just finally then, Michael, I mean, you know, just a bit of a, a, a final word for our, our advisor listeners. What would you say to them in particularly about the relevance and um, value of using managed solutions? Sure. You know, one thing we, we do see is is a lot of advisors think of it as a very binary decision. Either they use managed solutions or they don't. And I think the way we're seeing people starting to use these programs or have been using these programs um, in the recent past is, is in different ways. Now, of course, there's still that um, full delegation model where you as an advisor have decided that you want to delegate the investment management duties to somebody like ourselves and you you know, do your due diligence and then uh, make sure that the, advise, the client's in the right portfolio. And in a sense, fully de- delegate that investment management to a, a multi-asset solution team such as ourselves. And that st- still works extremely well. The other way is, though, is, 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 is sort of half measures, let's call it, you know, a segmentation approach. So what we do see with a lot of advisors is they'll focus on the top 20% of their clients, um, build portfolios for their clients, have more custom portfolios for those clients, but then delegate the bottom 80% of their client base to a managed solution. So they're spending the most of their time on their most important clients uh, from a revenue perspective. You know, that's another great way to, to incorporate managed solutions um, to free up some time and just, just you know, make life a little bit more, uh, a little bit more manageable. You know, the other way is, is a core and explore approach. So using a managed solution as a core part of your portfolio and then building around it with, you know, a couple of your favorite mutual funds um, or ETFs or even single stock ideas. You know, so having a 50 to 70% of your portfolio in a managed solution, uh, you know, a 60-40 managed solution or something like that, and then building around it is another way to partially delegate some of that investment management to a team like ourselves, but still have their hand in, in kind of that portfolio creation for those that want. And then the final one, I think, which is the most interesting right now, is what we're seeing advisors do is take something like our um, diversified income portfolio, which is which is a predominantly fixed income multi-asset portfolio, using that as their fixed income solution, and then building around that with, with equity holdings. So they're using that as their core fixed income sleeve, delegating the fixed income management to a team like ours, 
uh, and then building around that with various fixed, uh, various equity funds or single stock names or whatever. And that really allows them to delegate what is a very difficult part of the market to manage these days, fixed income, but still build portfolios uh, for their clients at different risk levels, um, depending on how much equities they want to have uh, within the client's uh, portfolio. So I'd say it's not just a, I do manage solutions or I don't. There's a lot of different ways to incorporate managed solutions um, fully or partially uh, to to really make the 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 um, the business more efficient. You know, with KYC, KYP, and all the other things that advisors have to do these days, um, it, it's very difficult. It's it's not an easy job. It's it's uh, very time consuming. Finding ways to free up some time to focus on the more value add parts of your, you know, or the advisor's practice. I think is really key and, 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 you know, using managed solutions in some way can, can definitely be a great solution for that. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on WP Talk. That was, uh, I really enjoyed that chat. It was some great insights. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Have a great day. And thanks uh, very much for your time too. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of WP Talk. And thanks to Michael, of course, for sharing his time and insights. Now you can go to franklintemperton.ca for more details about their solutions and in particular, franklintemperton.ca forward slash en hyphen ca forward slash products forward slash franklin hyphen quotential to find out more about that particular solution. We'll include links to both pages on the page. For more WP Talk episodes, go to wealthprofessional.ca, click on the resources tab and select WP Talk. The site also includes all the latest news and views from the industry. And if you haven't already, feel free to sign up to our daily newsletter. I'm James Burton. Until next time.